You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Wednesday, July 15, 2020, just after market close in London. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by our managing editor, Roger Hurst from near London. But first, Peter Cooper with today's stories. Thanks, Ash. This morning, Goldman Sachs came out of the gate roaring with their Q2 earnings, smashing all predictions, which has earned them their best performing quarter in over a decade. Their second quarter revenue came out to be $13.3 billion. This was more than $3.5 billion higher than the estimate. As a result, Goldman generated $2.42 billion in profits with an EPS of $6.26, when Refinitiv Analysis estimated that it would be $3.78. These strong numbers were driven by Goldman's trading and investment banking divisions, which make up the majority of their quarterly net revenue mix. Goldman's revenue from fixed income, currencies, and commodities, collectively known as FIC revenue for Q2, is $4.24 billion more than double what it was a year ago. For the equities division, they bought in $2.94 billion, the best that unit had done in 11 years. The extreme market volatility, the unprecedented levels of Fed support, and a huge surge in demand for trading services in light of these record gains in markets created the perfect breeding ground for the success of banks like Goldman Sachs. We talked yesterday about Citi's and JP Morgan's earning releases, and we saw that it was their sky-high trading revenues that underpinned the losses on their loan book. So for Goldman, we're seeing the same theme again just heightened. Meanwhile, companies such as Wells Fargo and the like, who are highly dependent on consumer finance and commercial banking, are bleeding. And that has a lot to do with who their customer base is. Goldman is catering to hedge fund managers wanting to get in on the extreme price action in equities, as well as CFOs of Fortune 500 companies seeking to issue debt amid one of the biggest bond bonanzas in history. Whereas the Wells Fargo's of the world have an entirely different clientele. They serve small businesses and consumers, who are at much more risk for insolvency as they don't have access to these flush capital markets. Even with these earnings reports, we can see the evidence of the divide between the real economy and the financial markets and who is really benefiting from it. And with that, let's go to Ash and Roger. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Peter. Welcome back, Roger. Thank you very much, Ash. Good to see you. It's been a while. It's always great to have you back. It has been a while. I've been busy filming and stuff like that, doing other bits and pieces. So it's great to be back on again. So, Roger, let's jump right in. What are you looking at today? I've been looking at a couple of things. I've been looking at uh, China and the move that we saw in China last week or over the last two weeks. Um, I was very interested in some of the technicals that we saw on Monday in that reversal on the U.S. Not quite been negated yet, so we've got to keep an eye on those. So just a few bits and pieces. And then none of these are things where you go, okay, that's a change or anything. But things that people have to be aware of or I want to be aware of because as we've talked about before, is that we've moved from a, a rules-based environment pre-COVID to one in which 
we've got emotional players and actors in terms of the retail investors now. Um, and I think that you know that means that some of the technical factors, which have actually not been that great over the last few years, they probably come back into play. So it's just worth worth paying attention to. So what exactly are you looking at on that front? What technical factors do you find to be most engaging to you right now? Well, there was things like the um, on Monday we saw um, a two percent rally on the Nasdaq, followed by a reversal to two percent decline, and that's I think that's only happened twenty six times in its history. Now, the the performance of the market after that is not particularly informative, but in terms of having a two percent rally to an all time high intraday, and then reversing to have a one over over one percent decline, I think it's about one point. 7% the last time round, um, 2% this time round. That's only happened one time before, and that was, um, I think it was the 7th of March 2000. So about two weeks before what was then the all-time high of the dot-com bubble. So you had that. Um, you had a reversal indicator on the NASDAQ as well, which I think as Peter Brand pointed out, that it was um, very similar to a reversal that we got on the 20th of February. Uh, again, around the highs of what was the all-time highs on the NASDAQ before um, the sell-off. We've seen the uh, market cap to GDP of the US equity market reach the all-time highs again, in line with where we were pre-February at 154%. We pulled back slightly from that. And also, we're seeing a bit of divergence in volatility with the NASDAQ volatility moving significantly higher versus um, the S&P volatility. So this is the VXN versus the VIX. Again, you know, not one where you go, that's an obvious reversal indicator, but it is a sign that we've got rotation. And today, as we speak, we've had quite a big up move in the Russell versus, you know, the NASDAQ has not really performed that well since Monday, whereas other parts of the US equity market have. So there just feels to be a few things. And when we've seen these rollovers, we've seen volumes picking up on the down move compared to the up move. So a bit of distribution going on. So they're just well, things Roger, that you need to put in. When you mentioned distribution, I'm curious what you're thinking has been big picture. There's been a lot of talk the last few weeks, and you haven't had a chance to talk about this since uh, it started happening, between the divergence between the NASDAQ, the S&P 500, the Russell 2000, and the Dow. What are your big picture thoughts on the divergence between the large cap and smaller uh, cap U.S. equity indices? Well, I mean, that the big story has obviously been you know, initially the big divergence between the, the NASDAQ and particularly the few stocks in the NASDAQ. Uh, and the S&P. And that's kind of continued because, you know, we made a new all-time high on the NASDAQ on Monday, and whereas the S&P has failed. The the Russell has been a little bit sort of more two-way. It's had some great moves to the upside and then to the downside. But obviously, it's still the NASDAQ that's been making those new all-time highs. But I think actually what's really interesting is not so much what we've seen within the US, but what we've been seeing between the US and other regions, and particularly emerging markets. And emerging markets have had mm -hmm. their most, they've had their longest sustained outperformance versus the S&P, since the end of 2018, when we had the big sell-off then. So I mean, this is commensurate with, obviously, a weaker dollar that we've been seeing. So all this is sort of saying, OK, again, rotation. The leadership of the US is not quite so stark as it was. And we're seeing other regions now starting to not pick up the baton, but it is a distribution. We are seeing you know, rotations into other parts and other sectors. Um, that often means that maybe we're maturing in the market. I think we talk about yesterday, some people, quite a lot of people think that we are now early cycle again. Um, I see this just the way we've seen the volumes, in particular the volumes pick up on the down moves. And when we have the major distributions with the emerging markets outperforming, those are not on high volume days. To me, it still feels like this is a market that's that's struggling for direction. And in some ways, it's kind of it's got to make up its mind. It could be another breakout because we've still got ample liquidity and very very low 
um, very, very loose financial conditions. Or maybe this is the point where we just run out of it, run out of a bit of momentum. So <laughs> that's not very useful for anyone because I'm basically saying it could go either way. But what I am saying is be aware that there are some stuffs on some stuff in the internals which are um, are warning signs. They're red flags, um, whether you're bullish or bearish, and you just have to be aware of them. It might just be a short-term pullback. Who knows? But they are happening. Yeah. You know, those you raised some very interesting questions there. And talking of which, something that you brought up, the dollar, uh, DXY appears to be rolling over right now. What are your thoughts on that? So, the yeah, the dollar index is... Um, I mean, it's looking like a topping formation. When I say a topping formation, not an all-time topping formation, but one which could see the dollar index move back to the bottom of the range that's been in place for the last few years. And that would be around about the 92 level on the dollar index. Now, we always got to remember that the dollar index is 57% euro. Um, there's a key date coming up for the euro is that um, on the 17th and 18th of this month, i.e. in the next couple of days, we have the um, a European summit where they're going to try and discuss that 750 billion rescue package in the 1.1 trillion seven-year EU budget um, with the frugal five, because it's now Finland is in line with the other four, which are Denmark, um, the Netherlands, Sweden, and Austria, they're all sort of pushing back on it. So it may be that here we are with quite stretched positions in terms of the dollar, i.e. the shorts on the dollar index in terms of futures are now at the sort of 10-year um, wide um, highs in terms of shorts. The longs on the euro, again, from the CFTC positioning, is the second highest it's been in, in 10 years. So we're just kind of getting maybe a little bit stretched at a point where we might get disappointment in that the EU may not pass this uh, through this summit, this uh, this package at this stage. I think it'll roll on through the summer. So there's just a couple of things out there, which along with these technicals, I think just warrant, maybe not caution, but as I say, yeah, I always talk about frameworks and people need to be cognizant of all these things, whether you're a bull or a bear. Yeah, and for those who are not following this as closely as Roger is, uh, DXY was up to about 102, I think 102 spot eight uh, in March, nearly 103, and it is down now at 96 uh, spot 08, close to losing that 96 handle. Yeah, and one of the great ironies of this is that the dollar has been weakening ever since the Fed's been tightening its balance sheet because the momentum in the S&P and in the Nasdaq to a certain extent, although Nasdaq made a new highs, um, the momentum of the S&P and the equity market in the US has slowed as the Fed has rolled back their um, balance sheet. Now, the good thing is they have reduced their balance sheets and equities haven't sold off. But we have seen the market lose momentum. And the dollar, you know, most people think, well, if you tighten your balance sheet, the dollar should go up. And when you expand your balance sheet, it should go down. It's actually been going the other way around on this. So um, it's, you know, there are a couple of elements out there. How far will the Fed go in tightening its balance sheet may be the defining factor for both the equity market and the dollar at this stage. Yeah. You know, talking of banks and banking, obviously, we're in bank earnings season here in the thick of it in New York. Uh, I was excited to talk to you today. You, of course, have been at uh, Goldman Deutsche Bank for many years. I believe Morgan Stanley as well. You're a great uh, bank man. And I'm curious to hear your interpretation of what those earnings signal or portend for the future. Yeah, I, you're right. I've tarted my way around the city. I've been at, at five different investment banks in the 20 odd years I was doing it. Which um, so you missed um, SBC Warburg was my first yeah. one, which became UBS. And I had a one year stint at Barclays Capital. So I've done, I haven't quite got the full house. You know, a few of them went bust before I could get in there. But you know, I've been trying. Um, and I think that, the, you know, the, the key element, I think, of this is that there's a very clear um, uh, bifurcation between the trading houses. So the, the investment banks or in some cases, former investment banks and those which are a little bit more of the commercial element. 
And, you know, in a, in a period of volatility like we've seen, you should be getting better earnings. And I think in some ways what's helped the banks is that, unlike in 2008, because of the Volcker rules, it meant that they haven't been trading. And therefore, unlike hedge funds, they've not been kind of following the active management crowd. And therefore, they haven't been saddled with all the positions that could have gone sour. What they were able to do, and, and you know, these investment banks ultimately um, should be taking advantage because in a world where volatility goes up and spreads widen out and they have the choice to either take or not take the prices, um, they should be able to make money, which is what they've done. You can see a very clear bifurcation between Wells Fargo, which has less of a trading arm versus you know, the, the Goldman Sachs, which I think was out today, and JP Morgan, although it's a behemoth. It's also a behemoth in the trading space as well. Right, so they've done very, very well. And I think that that, you know, it's just a reflection of that volatility in that quarter. You know, just for those who haven't been following it as closely as you have, if you could describe a little bit about what those results were. We obviously saw some big blowouts and FIC uh, and trading profits at some of the banks. Could you just provide a little bit of color and a little bit of context to people who don't follow that space as closely as you do? Well, I mean, that's basically it is that we saw volumes explode and volumes exploding with spreads widening out bid offer spreads, which effectively is, is free money to these banks. And um, what we've seen is, you know, those that have been trading, particularly the fixed income market. And remember, we had that massive, you know, surprising blow up in mid-March in the fixed income market where the equity market continued to go down and then the bond market started to sell off as well. And that's when on the 23rd of March, I think it was, where the Fed came out and said, hey, QE infinity. And that's, that was kind of to stop that big move where I think we'd seen a move from around about 40 basis points to about 120 basis points on the 10-year yield. They stopped that move. That was the real dislocation, the tearing apart in the liquidity space. Uh, and by, by kind of putting a backstop onto that, it really gave the investment banks you know, the green light or it was, it was a kind of the backstop for them to really go out and make hay whilst the sun shined in terms of a volatile market. And obviously, everybody else was being a price taker. They were being the price givers. So they made a lot of money in this scenario and they didn't have massive positions. They will still take positions against all their clients, but they didn't have massive um, hedge fund style positions as they had in 2008, which is what killed them back then. Okay. The banks that don't have that are the ones which are exposed to the real economy. And Wells Fargo has something like 180 billion of commercial real estate. And that's clearly going to be a real kind of you know, millstone around the neck. And the commercial banks will be in that position. The problem going forward is you're not going to, I don't think you're going to get that sort of volatility again, because let's face it, it came out of nowhere. It was the biggest sell-off and the biggest, fastest rebound we've ever seen. Could have been a killer if you'd had a massive equity position on your books. But if you're just taking advantage of volatility like that, then that was a great, I'm not going to say one-off, but it was a great moment in time for the nimble investment banks. And there are fewer compared to 2008. So those that were still there and had the, the opportunity really cleaned up. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, and then the question is, is that a one-off? You know, the question is really an interesting one. The, the frame that we were talking about this in, so what Wells Fargo compared to, for example, Goldman Sachs uh, and Morgan Stanley, which have these larger trading operations. And then interestingly, uh, JP Morgan, which really is both. It has it's a massive commercial bank uh, and also has uh, massive trading operations. Do you talk a little bit to those distinctions? Yeah, so, you know, the, the trading operations that, you know, that, Morgan Stanley has really been very, very prominent 
in the um, in the equity space. So they've done very, very well in equity derivatives in particular, but the sort of flow equity space. Um, JP Morgan, Citibank to a certain extent, these are the big fixed income houses, same with um, Bank of America, they've got a reasonably good hybrid model. Um, and so, and they've, you know, the way they, they still have inventory, and what I mean by inventory is that, you know, if a client comes in and wants to buy or sell an option, you, you don't just roll that off your balance sheet, often you have to hold that. And the, so there are certain limits that they have, but they will be able to hold that sort of inventory. So they will be still long or short vol. And I'm guessing that they were nimble enough to get relatively long volatility in that volatility explosion. And then I guess the Pavlovian condition that would have kicked in is that when the liquidity was provided, and the importance about that liquidity was to the shadow banking system, which feeds off the banking system, because it was the shadow banks that had taken the place of the banks to provide liquidity on the data trade, kind of trading in the market through high frequency trading. They all use massive leverage to make, you know, turn, you know, one, two, three basis point spreads into, you know, a few percent every year. They were the ones who were blowing up um, along with the risk parity funds back in the middle of March. Now, they were protected mainly because they're given money through the banks, the big banks like the JP Morgans. So they're clearing up on, on both sides. They're basically providing um, liquidity via the Fed, which they'll probably be taking a nice haircut and the trading. So they're collecting on, on every side. And if you're a commercial bank, you know, there are probably some opportunities as well, because we've seen a massive, you know, was it now 1.4 trillion, 1.3 trillion of corporate bonds in the capital markets, partly facilitated um, by these institutions. In Europe, we've seen a lot of bonds, government bonds syndicated rather than go to auction. Again, banks will be taking something out of that. So the banks were protected by the liquidity. And if they're a trading account, they've made money. Now, if you're a commercial bank, you've got loads and loads of legacy loans out there to the real economy, which you know, has been, has basically been, uh, I wouldn't say destroyed, but has been certainly had a lot of issues thrown onto it, which have been put on hold for now, but will materialize over the future. The investment banks have fewer of those, although obviously the hybrid models, you know, even Goldman's now got a, a, a retail arm as well. They will now have some non-performing loans going forward, which is why we've seen these huge um, loan provisions for the non-performing loans going forward, a massive spike over the last uh, couple of quarters. Yeah. Yeah, the loan loan provisioning was definitely a major a major story uh, in every one of these banks that reported. Yeah, I mean huge, huge levels. If you actually look at the chart and compare it to 2008, 2008 peak was slightly higher than today, but the speed with which we got to that peak was two quarters this time, where it was a building over you know pretty much a year and a half beforehand. And the real issue here is that is it enough? Because you can just tell that things. 2008 was liquidity. And once eventually the central banks worked out, oh, yeah, it's liquidity, they fixed it. And you know, when I say fixed, they put, they put the plaster on it because there's obviously the underlying issues of the economy. This time around, they fixed the liquidity, but they haven't fixed the solvency. Mm. And in the UK, and I think it's the same in the US, it feels like there is life support, but the life support machine is going to be turned off for a lot of small businesses in particular. And even we're seeing some of the big business. I think you know there's 30 businesses over a billion in size in the US have already filed. They think it will be 60 by the end of this year. And then at the smaller business level, it's going to accelerate as well. That's the problem for the commercial banks. And we know that real estate, you know, as we talked about before this, this call, real estate is fundamentally changing, as you can feel when I went into, into the city of London this week. Yeah, tell that story. I thought that was really compelling. You know, when I said this, I said last week, I went in on Monday to film the last part of our Refinitiv series. And it was, you know, someone who's been in the city for 20 years, 
being right in the center of the financial district. It's banks. So it's the Bank of England. It's the old Royal Exchange. It's the busiest center. There's about four or five tubes that get into there. Normally, you're fighting on the on, on the on the sidewalks or pavements in the UK. There's buses everywhere. There was no one. Nothing there at all. We were filming for a whole day. We could put up our cameras in the streets, so actually in the road. We went to the Millennium Bridge, which connects St. Paul's Cathedral to the Tate Modern, two of the busiest tourist spots. And apart from one um, UK minister who is also being photographed on the bridge, we pretty much had it to ourselves. It, it was astonishing. And it was astonishing because here I am you know, in Alborough on the coast in Suffolk, 70 miles outside London. We're sort of 90% back to normal. The streets are busy. The restaurants are obviously having to do their distancing. But otherwise, right. this is a region that feels normal. The city of London and London itself was still a ghost town. And I was absolutely shocked. But then I was reading today that, you know, Goldman and uh, Nomura and a few others, they've only got about 10% of their people back. It felt to us that it was only a quarter of where it should have been in terms of capacity. And just a ghost town. Amazing. Do we get any good footage of uh, Roger wandering down Threadneedle Street as though the world had ended? Um, we've we've had a bit of me walking down the steps of the Royal Exchange, which is the old um, trading, you know, open outcry trading floor. And on the Millennium Bridge, a bit windswept. So, you know, we've got a bit of that. But it's, I mean, the fact is it was easy to film because there was absolutely no one there. And you just felt, you know, when the other shock was going in on the, we went in at rush hour. Three mm. of us got in, into the carriage. There's a place tree, which is in Essex, a county outside London. It probably has about 500, 700 cars. We counted six. That's at rush hour. Wow. It's astonishing. No one is basically going into this, the financial district to work. They're working from home. And, and look, we've just stress tested the system with one of the great quarters for investment banks. And with probably only 20% of their people in the office, they've got a record quarter and they're probably running generally around about 90% with only you know 20% in the office. Clearly, things are going to change. Well, easy to film for Real Vision and Refinitiv. What more could we ask for? Well, exactly. It made our, our life was very easy. The hardest one was we wanted to do one with communities, show communities were coming back. We couldn't find enough people. We had to get all the people filming to, behind the camera to sit in the pub to make it look like there's people in the city of London. <laughs> Little movie magic there. Uh, you know, I'm interested. You you mentioned inventory. Uh, we were talking about banks a few minutes ago, and I, I was just thinking about a. Uh, I, I saw uh, Paul Volcker give a speech toward the end of his life, uh, probably uh, the last year or two of his life, and he was still an amazing man, razor sharp. Uh, and someone asked him a question about the Volcker rule, and he, you know, demurred and said, "Look, it's named after me, but I'm not working on the mechanics of it. But I will tell you this: the one thing that I know." after being in this space for so many decades, is that banks will continue to come to you and ask you questions about inventory. And he basically said, they're going to come to you and say, we have a client and we know that client is going to want to purchase X securities in the next hour. Can we buy it? And the answer will be yes. And they'll keep pushing. Then they'll come to you and say, well, we have a feeling they're going to buy in a day, in a week, in a month. And they're going to progressively try and walk back toward a prop trading environment because obviously there are margins in it for them. What are your thoughts? And if you could explain a little bit uh, to our viewers the importance of inventory, how it gets maintained, the changes to the rules, and how banks think about that space. Well, this was something that um, in the first piece that I did for Affinitive, I actually sort of said, look, I think that the um, global significant investment, so globally um, significant banks rules will get rolled back because there's, there's issues. This was back in September and, and um, October. Of, of last year, what they ended up doing was increasing the repo. So, you know, the Fed started increasing its balance sheet to, to offset these issues. 
And what we're seeing there is that um, there have been changes. So you know, some of the banks have moved loans to bonds and they were basically hoarding cash because of the, 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 the basically the charges for holding inventory. So if you want to hold inventory, you have a charge against it because there's a risk if you hold inventory. So for a lot of investment banks and a lot of, of uh, commercial banks, they have been discouraged from having this inventory. Now, obviously, you know, what you can use your inventory for is fulfilling client orders. Now, the, the risk that people see in this is that, and this is a risk that was really highlighted in the middle of the last decade, but it's very clear in the corporate bond space, because if you look at the stock of corporate bonds, it's obviously gone through the roof. As we've seen corporate America increase the corporate debt to GDP ratio, uh, not exponentially, but it's huge. And obviously in that triple B space and the, the junk space, at the same time, the inventory that the investment banks hold has been falling and falling and falling. Now, this is one of the reasons why they had to come in with so much liquidity is that there's a huge mismatch, mismatch between the size of the stock in the market versus the inventory that investment banks can hold. And obviously, when you have an incident like we had in March, where volatility goes up, the actual amount that you can trade and the amount that you want to hold on your balance sheet falls. So you're going to have a massive mismatch. And that's effectively what the Fed had to come in and deal with. Now, the investment banks, and again, some people said quite rationally, in this period of high volatility, shouldn't we allow the banks to start trading a bit more like hedge funds and be allowed to have bigger positions? And you can see yes and no. Um, I think the problem is that, you know, you, you it, it goes one way too far and it goes the other way. And you, you want to kind of get that middle ground. But you never do. You never stop at the optimal point. You always go too right. far one way or the other. We've probably gone too far one way, which is they have too little now, which is one of the big risks, the liquidity risk. Yeah. So basically you trade inventory risk for liquidity risk. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, what do you need? You need effectively the central bank stroke sort of like quasi the taxpayer to step in once again to protect. In this case, you know, the risks had moved away from the banks to the asset managers. So the holders of assets are now the ones who are at risk that this could all have imploded. So the Fed had to step in and say, you know, we'll buy the corporate bonds. Now, that's the great moral risk there. But, you know, the thing is that the asset managers could have been like the banks of 2008. They would have had a problem if they hadn't provided that liquidity. Yeah. And of course, the central banks are the ones who step up. The central banks are the ones that continue to take on the risk. Yeah, well, they, they sort of take on the risk. And it's it's sort of, and this is the thing, is it, it feels like they're actually um, allowing the, the risk to dissipate. But ultimately, it's what they're taking out is a liquidity risk at that one moment in time. But as we've talked about before, for the last 10 years, central banks, by stepping in with the monetary QE kind of liquidity risk backstop, have created an economic growth risk, which meant that when we had the crisis that we've had, the rest of the real economy was not in a strong shape to be able to deal with the fallout. And that's why we had such a dramatic um, reversal in the markets to the downside, which caught everyone by surprise. I mean, people, some people may have called the top, but very few people thought we'd get 35% in three weeks time from an all time high. That was the market structure that has resulted from these actions of central banks distorting the cost of capital and encouraging the concept of rules-based and passive investing at the expense of active. So it's a big framework that's been in place for 10 years that, that was tested. The central banks have put yet another big plaster on it, but it's not fixed. Excellent point. Roger, you talked a little bit about the technicals earlier. Just to wrap up here, what are you going to be looking at going forward? Um, I think it's worth always worth looking at the Aussie dollar because the Aussie dollar was one of the first currencies to properly punch out of the lows um, back in March. 
And it's been trying to push higher, obviously, with the dollar coming back, it's been also trying to push higher, but it's, it's been at this 70 level, 70 cent level, and it's been flatlining there for a while. And, and you know, there was a time, remember when we had the 5% pullback on the S&P in early June, you were given a little bit of an insight to that because the Aussie dollar had a little bit of a pullback a couple of days beforehand. So I'm going to look at the Aussie dollar. If it fails at this 70 level, I think that's a signal, signal for risk. Um, oil is another one. You know, WTI closed that gap um, that was created when we had the beginning of the oil price war. But again, it's been struggling at this sort of 40, 42 level where that gap opened up. So flatlining along there. So there's a lot of these other risk assets um, which are there. And copper, so this is the, the COMEX copper, so the US copper, that's hit a 10-year um, resistance level. If all these fail here, it would suggest that, you know, we've not just got one or two pockets like a few signs from the U.S. equity market, et cetera. But there may be one or two other things. So I'm going to keep an eye on those. If those break out, then you've probably got another leg um, higher in these equity markets. But if that's also with the weaker dollar, then you probably want to shift towards the more industrial part of the market. You probably want to shift towards um, emerging markets still. You'll extend that. And because I talked about that VIX versus sort of VIX versus VXN and NASDAQ volatility, it suggests that this rotation may still be part and parcel of that move. So it feels like we either get a rotation and a move higher, or we get a rollover. And I think I want to watch those big levels for that, because one of them might give us an early warning to the others. It might be the Aussie dollar moves first. It might be the oil rolls over first. We don't know, but by keeping, you know, view on four or five different things, we might get one of them giving us an early sign or otherwise. Good advice. Roger, we always enjoy when you come to speak with us. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.